We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, but today doesn't feel that way. We are divided in more ways than one, and the media and the powers that be all have their own agenda. The people of this great nation no longer care about the truth, they only care about the side they are on. At Poor360, I am trying to change that. We're bringing you the facts and history so we can all learn something and make our own decisions. Tune in every Tuesday to be a part of that journey. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. And here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Journey into Comics, the podcast dedicated to all things nerd, with your host, the Podfather himself, Nate Phillips. Showtime, a-holes! What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of Journey Into Comics. It's Journey Into Comics 244. As always, I am your host, Nate. Hope everybody's having a fantastic Monday here. You know, it's crazy. This has been one of the weirdest weekends of my life. Our whole routine is thrown off. I'm not really going to go into super details about it because it just has been different is all I can really say. We've been doing a lot of running around and things are just not consistent like they usually are. So, I thought, you know, there's not really a lot to catch up on. I mean, you guys want to hear me talk about mowing my yard? That's pretty much the only thing really prominent or important or big news that happened to me over this week. It's been a lot of the the behind-the-scenes work for the network and behind-the-scenes work for the band and all that stuff. And You know what? It's not, not today. I got a lot of comic news today. I got a lot of movie comic news. Got a lot of actual comic book news. We're going to be diving into several different things today. And the very first thing kicking off is from the page to the screen as we've been doing now for the second week in a row. I'm going to talk about some stuff that's movie-related in the comic book world. Keeping it here right to kick off this show this week because we got a big one, man. Kevin Feige. Yeah, the Kevin Feige. Yeah, the guy that made all this shit that we love so much possible, you know? Uh... He did a Reddit AMA, and I kind of followed it as it was happening, and I thought, how cool would it be to just go ahead and break down some of the cool stuff that was in this AMA? I'm not going to read every single thing, but there are some tidbits and some good stuff. I'm going to have to be doing some scrolling, so it is going to be kind of not really choppy, but you guys will see how it goes, but... Anyways, let's get down to it. The first question we had that I really thought was like, man, and I think this is the highest uh, rated question now on the the actual thing, but it was somewhere in the early to middle part of this AMA. Uh, Webcrawler89 asked, you've been involved in producing Marvel movies since 2000, some of which pre-MCU had missteps. What kind of lessons did you learn from those that helped you create this vision of the MCU that is now not only a worldwide phenomenon, but has also been a hit with critics. And then he goes on to thank him. Kevin Feige responded with three very important pillars of what made the MCU possible. We're going to talk about each one of them. Number one, respect the source material. And I feel like, you know, Marvel has been clever and also very awesome with how they respect the source material because sometimes they've not been able, like, they couldn't do the pure version of the Civil War because, well... The X-Men, Fantastic Four weren't a part of it, hadn't happened yet. Maybe they, you know, they had a 10-year plan. 
and they had to execute it how they executed it. And I think putting Civil War deep in there, having it be almost a, a special Avengers movie outside of an actual Avengers movie and making it still very much a Captain America story was great. Uh, and that's just an example of how they respected the source material because they kept it Tony versus Steve. The reasons were personal. It fractured the team. It cost them. Ultimately, it costs them everything, you know, when you look at all the way through to Endgame. So that is a huge thing that we know for a fact they successfully did. They respected every bit of the source material uh, from the comics. The next thing on the list is hire passionate filmmakers regardless of how much money their last movie made. Now, I think this is very important because you've had a lot of jumps from people who had moderate to no notoriety in the directing world now become very successful. Obviously, coming to mind, James Gunn is, is a great example. He had done movies like Slither. He had done Super. Kind of under-the-radar guy, you know. I mean, he was easily accessible at that point in his career. And then now he is ridiculous. He blew up. And it didn't matter what he had done in the past. That does not make a difference. What mattered was where his heart was. And I think ultimately where his heart was and his ability to look inward and reflect after Disney decided to fire him is a lot of the reason Disney decided to unfire him and bring him back when they rehired him a few months ago. Third and last, I think this was the most important of the three facts that he said, hire the best cast regardless of their current regardless of their current marquee value, meaning let's look at Robert Downey Jr. at the very, very, very beginning of this thing. Robert Downey Jr. had just been to jail and come off this drug problem and was trying to become a new person. He was entering a different phase in his life. I think maybe he had realized he, you know, he had more in him. And uh, that decision to go, you know what, this guy maybe isn't the guy everyone would expect. Maybe people thought Johnny Depp, because he he was super popular in 2007 and 2008, you know, I mean, that was right around the time that, uh, you know, the Pirates movies were blowing up, so it could have very well been somebody, I mean, it obviously, I don't think they ever thought to cast Johnny Depp, but that's what I'm saying, they took a quote-unquote gamble, but it was very, very intelligently done, I mean, when you look, every time they cast somebody in the MCU, I mean, like, in the earlier days, people would be like, really, Chris Hemsworth? Thor? Really? That's, that's, the, that's I mean, I was the guy that was like, fucking, it should be Triple H. I'm so glad it wasn't Triple H. Hemsworth is Thor the end. There can never be a different Thor more than him is the best way to say that. So really Marvel just knew they took gambles, but the gambles were so calculated that they knew that they would pay off and they did. So let's move on to the next uh, part of this. So while you said you had a meeting with Mark Ruffalo and asked what he wanted out of the Hulk, uh, then included that in Ragnarok, Infinity War, and Endgame, now that all three movies are out, can we get more information on what Ruffalo wanted out of the Hulk? Feige returns with a very great answer, and I love covering this one because Hulk, Hulk's one of Tyler's favorites. I uh, can't wait to ch chat with him in the very near future. So Kevin Feige says... Many years ago, Mark came in for a meeting with us at Marvel Studios to discuss ways in which the Hulk could grow and evolve in our upcoming films. He pitched a lot of cool ideas, some which led to what you saw in Thor, in, in, in Thor Ragnarok, in Infinity War, and Endgame. 
some of which would still be cool to see someday. So see, that the reason I brought that question to the fold is because that lingering would still be cool to see someday. It's like maybe Mark Ruffalo really has a lot more to say in what he wants out of this Hulk character now that he kind of has become the Hulk. I mean, he's played that character really in more consecutive movies than any actor in history. So at this point, he is the Iron Man of Hulk. I mean, that's stupid to say, but really the, the idea that Ruffalo went in and he's like, man, what if we did Planet Hulk? What if we did this? What if, you know, um, Hulk can't go anymore because he has a burnt up arm? I mean, I don't know if that's what happened, but I just love that answer. Anyways, uh, someone says, is there anything in particular you and the creative forces behind Marvel Studios consciously do to try to avoid falling into this so-called comic book movie fatigue people are claiming? Also, how many Easter eggs are out there that no one has caught on to yet? I don't know if he'll answer that second one. Uh, but he, Kevin Feige responds with, No one would get fatigued before the creative forces at Marvel Studios who do this 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So we believe that if we're still taking risks and using unique choices to keep ourselves excited, the audience will feel the same way. Boom. I mean, you can't even, there's nothing else to say. That's perfectly well said. And I don't see, you know, I don't really see superhero fatigue either. The thing is, these movies have been happening since the 70s and even a lot of ways, you know, with Batman 66 before then in the 60s and even before then in the 30s. I mean, superhero movies have happened for almost 100 years at this point. And sure, back in the day, they weren't good, but you're learning this new thing. I mean, video game movies aren't good, but maybe someday we will have an amazing video game movie that is like, holy shit, they did Halo in this way, and it was such a, that's just an example, or they did Gears of War in this, whatever story. They could do literally any video game. Uncharted maybe will be the one, you know, where they tell a great story, and it's not corny, and they go, wow, I forgot this was a video game based, but it's perfect, you know? And I think that's what they did here, because, you know, 89 Batman, awesome it not really comic booky though it's very serious dark gritty tone and same to be said with 92 batman returns and then they tried to get really corny and weird moving into the late 90s and almost killed it so x-men took the serious twist back and then you know the the batman begins film in 2005 kind of really really set the pace for a different kind of superhero movie that can be ultra serious but be comic booky in what they're giving you I guess is the way to say not and also realistic too keep that in mind Chris Nolan definitely wanted to keep it realistic but no one has perfected the it's a comic book and it's also a superhero movie but it's also a different genre movie because as I've said many times Marvel is so good with making movies that are not just here's our superhero it's driven by the superhero the story is all about the superhero superhero they instead go, let's make a heist movie, or let's make a drama, or let's make an action comedy, or a rom-com, or let's make, you know, um, some sort of art piece, or something that's totally never been done before, or, you know, whatever. Marvel doesn't care. They can do a tactical espionage movie and also have superheroes in it, and you go, that was like a political thriller, tactical espionage, Winter Soldier movie, obviously what I'm talking about there. So anyways... Uh, 
This guy says, uh, he thanks him, blah, 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 blah. Okay, he, he, he asks this question. Why was John Favreau chosen to direct Iron Man? I love the movie, and I think John did an amazing job, but he had never done anything like that in regards of scale, budget, or genre. What made John Favreau stand out? And Kevin Feige said, John Favreau is one of the best storytellers on the planet, and Elf is a stone-cold classic. I love that. So I guess that Elf is the reason he got the job, so thanks to Buddy the Elf for making the MCU possible. Wishes do come true. Uh, so let's see, let's see. Given that it takes a village to make these movies, is there anybody at Marvel Studios you feel is underappreciated by the general public? What is your process for looking for directors for any one film? And then he thanks him. And he says it's the entire team at Marvel uh, Studios that makes it the movies, which are from Louis D'Esposito, Tren Tran, Victoria Alonso, Nate Moore, Brad Winderbaum, Jonathan Schwartz, Stefan Bozard, Eric Carroll, and many more. I'd also give a shout-out to our editor, Jeff Ford. So... Uh, another person asks, hi, Quev- hi, little, hi, Kevin. Question is about Joe and Anthony Russo. When did you and your team at Marvel realize that they were the ones that should helm the last two Avengers films? Was there a specific moment you remember thinking that they would be best to handle the conclusion to this saga? And Kevin responded with, we loved the experience working with them on Winter Soldier. We had an amazing time developing the Civil War script with them. And I think it was soon before the production began on Civil War that we asked them to direct Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, little three-part question here. <clears throat> Mr. Feige, are there any storylines that you think are unfilmable? That's question one. He responds, everything is filmable nowadays. It's about finding the most resonant character stories to bring to the big screen. Question two, has producing these films changed the way you read and enjoy comics? Feige says, not really. I still like to read the comics every week from a fan's point of view. Number three, who is someone that is yet to appear in the MCU that you are itching to introduce? Question mark. And Kevin Feige just says, you'll know soon enough. Oh my God. So someone who is not in the MCU very soon will be introduced. I think it's Nova. That's my personal opinion. Nova's been mentioned many times throughout. I feel like the Eternals movie is maybe going to be the launch of Nova. But maybe I don't know if there'll be like an after credit to launch Nova or something like that. But I feel like in the very near future, or maybe he's talking about, there's there, I mean, there's so many different possibilities here, I don't know. So, another question, someone says, tons of directors and producers have made cameos in movies, Joe Russo a few times, Taika Waititi is Korg, uh, but we, but have you ever considered doing a cameo as a character you like? If so, who would they be? Kevin says, I don't like being on camera, but I did cameo in a deleted scene in the first X-Men as a Weapon X technician. I was completely covered in a hood, mask, and goggles. He really didn't like being on camera because he was covered and they deleted it anyways. Next question. People have expressed views that in Endgame, those brought back by the snap could have died in accidents, like someone being brought back 100 feet in the air where a plane used to be. Is it possible that Hulk, when doing the snap, not only brought everyone back, but also brought them back in a safe place? Kevin Feige responds, very short and sweet. We refer to the version of Hulk in Endgame as Smart Hulk, so yes. Meaning, Hulk, as he's going to snap his fingers, when he's thinking about how to do this, he's thinking, bring everyone back and bring them back in a safe situation. So don't just drop them off 
to their death, to their doom, to their demise. If they were, you know, in an airplane, the airplane's not there anymore. They were driving in a car. The car's not there anymore, but their body is flown, like going 60 miles an hour or stops in the middle of traffic. Like, that'd be terrible. So that is very good to know that Smart Hulk thought about it and put it together. The next question says, who are some of the behind-the-scenes people at Marvel Studios who should be given some recognition for making the MCU what it is now? And he says the best part about putting a tag at the end of a movie is so the audience can sit through the entire end crawl and read all the names of the amazing people who make the MCU what it is. Boom! Uh, My question, not very original, but I've always wanted to ask what your favorite comic book storyline is and why. There are too many to name, but many of them you've already seen adapted as stories into the MCU. Jim Starlin's Infinity Gauntlet being a prime example. So, I mean, he took the idea of the Infinity Gauntlet and turned it on its head to make it its own thing for Infinity War slash Endgame. And I think it worked beautifully. That's just my personal opinion. I'm going to take a quick... Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it. First 16 minutes in, I think we're doing all right here. We're going to take a quick drink break brought to you by Poor360. You guys check out Poor360 every Tuesday right here on the Journey into Comics Network. Andrew Poor's the host, talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. Who knows what the topic will be this week. Last week's was great. It was on spoilers. The week before that was sensationalism. I mean, he covers some some ground. He's got a lot of different visions, viewpoints, and ideas. So make sure to be checking out Poor360 every Tuesday right here at journeyintocomics.com. Thanks, Pepsi, for that delicious drink break. Uh, hi, Kevin. Uh, it's Kevin, this person says. And I wanted to ask what made you guys start with Iron Man in the first film to start a legacy with. It was an incredibly great idea with the script and actors making it awesome, but why Iron Man first? Feige thought, or Feige responds, we thought Tony Stark was a great and unique character for our first film because he was so different from any other comic book character that had been brought to the screen before. Without going into next question, without going into details about developing pro, developing projects, are there any plans to incorporate the Ten Rings from the first Iron Man or the real Mandarin teased in All Hail the King in the future? All Hail the King being the uh, Marvel one shot that was tagged along with Iron Man three, I do believe, in the Blu-ray. Uh, so, Kevin Feige, one word answer: yes. So, what does this mean? He he literally just with one word, because he couldn't go into details, answered that yes, the real Mandarin who was teased in All Hail the King, who calls Travis Slattery in the jail and and pretty much is not happy with him for impersonating him, the real Mandarin, the real Ten Rings are somewhere coming. And um, I think this would be awesome. They have this uh, Shang-Chi movie that they've said that is coming out. And maybe... The Mandarin would make for a great villain for that hero. And I don't really know much about Shang-Chi. I'm going to be going in, like a lot of you, probably, naive to this character, but excited to learn and excited to find out what Marvel has to offer me, a fan who is willing now to watch anything Marvel puts in front of me. I'll be there in theaters. I will be excited. Cannot wait. Let's get into this next question. What is your favorite Marvel character that isn't in the current MCU? And Kevin Feige says, I never play favorites, but there are many Marvel characters that I've loved for many years that are headed to the MCU soon. I can't be more specific than that. Sorry. Hot damn. I mean, hes they're really teeing up that soon. He keeps saying soon. And you know, when he says soon, he's meaning within a couple months. I think before July is out, maybe by Journey into Comics 250 if we're lucky which I think will be the first week of July. 
Journey into Comics 250, by the way, new co-host, new intro, sort of. Uh, it's, I mean, it, same music, mostly the same tags, or same words, just some changes. But it will be different. I'm excited. Uh, I got to actually talk to Dick about starting to work on that soon. A couple things, anyways. Uh, and then, you know, uh, hopefully we will have a big chunk of the next five years of the MCU and what we're, you know, be expecting. Five years is a long time. They plan three movies a year. That's the next 15 movies in the MCU. Math that for me. They're going to tell us the next 15 movies soon. And we're going to have an idea of what where we're, where we're driving to next. And it might not be another endgame, but it might be a halfway point, say, another Civil War type movie. Secret Invasion, something like that. Who is going to be kind of the helm of the future of all this? Obviously, you can't say too much right now because people still are watching Endgame for the first time. And, um, you know, interesting. I went and saw it in 3D IMAX. I forgot to mention that to you guys. I did see that over this past week. I didn't see it in 3D. Why do I keep saying that? I did see it in IMAX, though, and it was amazing on the huge screen. It hit me in the feels every fucking time, every fucking spot. Again, I'm sitting there trying not to quote the whole movie because I'm, I'm very, very in tune with it now. And uh, it was brilliant. I mean, every single second of that movie, just it just gives it to you. There's not a moment where it's slow or forgettable or doesn't matter or isn't important to the overarching story. They gave you three hours of their absolute best. So what what you know you can't you can't tell everybody the future of the MCU because not everybody has seen. So there's going to be questions. Why are there no more Captain America movies? Probably or or, or you know why does it say uh, Sam Wilson Captain America or whatever they're going to call the first movie? Because they're probably going to make Sam. I mean he's got to have something, right? You gave him the mantle in the MCU ending of that movie. Uh, what are they going to do? Put him in other people's movies maybe maybe just make him the leader of the avengers and make that his like driving force that would be kind of cool uh there are a lot of different options i'm uncertain so let's go with another question uh let's see are there plans to use previously forgotten characters such as leader abomination or justin hammer in the mcu Kevin Feige says, I'm not sure I'd call them forgotten characters, but I love bringing back characters people think they've seen for the last of. For example, General Ross and Harley, which were at the end of Endgame. Um, the Russos, Marcus and McFeely, have recently shared some contradicting interpretations of Endgame's ending with Cap. Whether he grows old in an old alternate timeline or he grows old in the main MCU one, making him the father of Peggy's kids and Winter Soldier, can you give us a definitive canon answer for this. <laughs> he just says yes. <laughs> he, he doesn't actually answer the question. He doesn't. He literally just said yes. He could give them the answer, but he doesn't. Uh, do you have a favorite individual scene from any of the MCU movies? Also, do you have a script for Ant-Man and the Wasp 2? Because I have some ideas. There are too many to list, but I will say my entire MCU career was built up on that on-your-left moment in Endgame. Martin Starr was both an Incredible Hulk and briefly in the computer lab, very briefly in the computer lab, and in Spider-Man Homecoming as Peter Parker's debate coach. Can we assume these are the same people? Kevin Feige says, I do. 
he, Kevin Feige assumes that this guy is the same guy. So what does that mean? Martin Starr's character in Incredible Hulk is just like a, a techie nerd guy. And I think there was actually a deleted scene where uh, Banner, Ed Norton, delivers him a pizza. And it seems like he knows the truth. But it's he just is talking about how he was super hungry and wanted this pizza. And he he, he was he knew. It's, it's really weird. It's a strange thing. But that guy from that computer lab that's working with Mr. Blue in Incredible Hulk... Gets out of college and ends up being the teacher in Spider-Man: Homecoming, who is the debate coach for Parker's team. So that's awesome to see. So someone else asks, "How far is the MCU plan in advance?" Kevin Feige responding, "We usually work within a specific five-year plan at any given point, but often have a general plan that extends much, much further." <laughs> No way he's allowed to answer this. And Kevin Feige actually said, see above. He he saw that person say there was no way he was going to answer this, and he answered it. Uh, after Iron Man 1, when did you realize this franchise would be huge beyond a one-off superhero movie? Opening weekend of the first Avengers is his response. Kevin Feige's response. Another question is, is there an actor-actress that hasn't been in the MCU movie yet, but you wish to see in the MCU? And he says yes, lots. There's probably a ton. Uh, how much will the Disney Plus shows weave into the films? Totally and completely, Kevin Feige responds. Meaning, it's not just going to be like your other movies and the uh, or the, your other shows that have been like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that loosely tie in or the Netflix shows that just barely reference the existence of the Avengers but have no anything else to mention or do with that that world so it's interesting to note that because disney plus is their platform they're going to be fully able to be making mini mcu series on screen and make them essentially just set up their movies so you're always in it you're always watching you could be watching winter or a falcon and the winter soldier leading up to the next avengers movie and you've seen everything you see the end of that movie or that series Right when they get to the end of that first series, you have to go into the theaters to see how it all actually finishes up, because it, it it's it's just it's gonna weave, it's gonna give you everything, and that's beautiful. These characters are gonna be not just outside of the bubble, working on their own terms, and it also means that it's possible that we can have some really neat cameos from people like Robert Downey Jr., people like. Chris Evans, and anybody really in the entirety of the MCU, the Guardians could show up in a TV series for an episode. How fucking wild would that be? That was my first F-bomb the whole episode, I think. I'm doing pretty good. Who is Noob Master 69? And Kevin Feige says, aren't we all a little Noob Master 69? Uh, what casting did you have to fight the hardest for? Someone asks. Kevin Feige says Robert Downey Jr. That makes sense. Uh... Hey, Kev, what's your favorite DC movie? And Kevin Feige responds with Richard Donner's Superman 1. Uh, what did you think of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Kevin Feige responds with loved it. Um, somebody just says, Mr. Feige, thank you. And he just says, thank you, all caps. And it's really, I think that's funny. Okay, being a musician, I kind of understand this because I've had people walk up to me and thank me for a performance. And I'm like, what? Don't thank me for a performance. Thank you for coming to my performance. Like, 
I'm grateful that you fucking showed up. Why are you thanking me? I didn't, I just played music. That's it, you know? So I get where he's coming from. Like, guys, like, thank you, Kevin Feige. And Kevin Feige's like, why? You guys did all this. We made movies we loved. You guys, us, the fans, went and saw the movies. And that's and that's where where, where it's golden. So we're going to do a couple more here. Um, I don't think that one gets answered. I don't know. Let's see. Hmm. I think we've officially... Oh, here we go. I'm trying to find... there. It started. It kind of started to get sparse. Um, but I don't think he answered any more that were that prominent. I thought there was another big one that, that he answered, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's at the top. And I missed it because I did this a little bit out of order. Okay, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, here was the one. So someone says, uh, hey, Mr. Feige, it's absolutely unbelievable to have you here on Reddit. I'm so excited. I just have a few things to ask. Uh, even if the chances of you answering my questions are 1 in 14,605,000, I have a few. When did you become aware of the Marvel Studios subreddit? What do you feel about the insane hype here? Um, Kevin Feige says, uh, Marvel Studios producer Jonathan Swartz is always lurking around here and tells me about it. Okay. Question two. Out of all the MCU characters, whose arc is your personal favorite and why? Uh, he just says Tony Stark comes to mind. Three, question three. I really miss the Marvel one-shots that were a fun way to explore the world around the MCU through peripheral characters. Can we expect them to return? And his uh, Kevin Feige responds, we're coming up with many new fun ways to explore the world around the MCU. See Disney+. Plus. Uh, question four, Caplifting Mjolnir was one of the strongest crowd-cheering moments in Endgame. Does he become worthy in that moment, or has he been worthy for a while, say, since Age of Ultron? And Feige's response is, uh, we think he was always worthy and was being polite in Age of Ultron, meaning he didn't want to hurt uh, Thor's feelings and, you know, uh make him feel bad that he was also worthy. Uh, so he had to just, like, he barely moved it and was like, oh, I know all I need to know because I could just pick that up with no effort. So that's very interesting to note. Question five. Did you get a chance to watch a screening of Endgame with movie-going audience? If so, how did it go? He responds, yes, and it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. Uh couple extra questions but i do not think he answered any of them last one we'll do here and then we're going to move on into some other stuff we've got some other stuff to talk about so great of you to take time out of what was probably an insane schedule to do this the mcu is your baby it is an unprecedented part of film history and it means a lot to hundreds of thousands of people around the world congratulations on closing a chapter of that story with endgame i have a few questions do you have any creative regrets with the MCU? If you could go back and change anything in any of the movies, Star Wars style, would you change anything? If so, what? The first question is, uh, I made a joke once about regretting Chris Hemsworth's eyebrows. Uh, I, I made, Kevin Feige responds, I made a joke once about regretting dying Chris Hemsworth's eye, eyebrows blonde for the first Thor, but the truth is everything in those films and all the little details, the perfect ones and the not-so-perfect ones, that carried us through the experience of Endgame. Therefore, I would not change a thing. 
The next question, what is the hardest sell to executives at Marvel or Disney over the last 11 years? What was one thing that you fought most for that others tried to shut down? There are always conversations. Uh, he responds. Uh, Kevin Feige says, there are always conversations and discussions before a film is made. And for the most part, it's been an amazing corroboration. Collaboration. Back when we first started, the two that come to mind from 10 years ago are the casting of Robert Downey Jr., and the decision to make Captain America the first Avenger a World War II film. Third question. Most importantly, what are you most excited for going forward? I'm sure you can't talk about specifics, but what do you want to see more of in Marvel Studios releases? Any character storylines, concepts you are eager to engage with? He just puts dot, 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 the ellipses. No answer. No answer at all. All right, folks. Well, that was some of Kevin Feige's AMA. I think we covered quite a bit of that ground. Now, earlier in that, I was talking about one James Gunn. And somebody might have figured it out. And I don't know. I can't tell. I'm going to have to watch and actually pause it on my own time and really look at it. But apparently, someone at Giant Box of Comics blog says that it looks as if you can see Man-Thing, which we covered last week, Dr. Ted Salas, debuting back in Savage Tales number one uh, in May of 71, uh, appears to be on nowhere in one of the collector's cages in the post credit scenes when you see Howard the Duck. Uh you do see some moss in a cage. You can barely make out a long snout that kind of resembles how Man-Thing looks. So no one has officially called it. We still haven't had an official response from James Gunn, but it looks as if it could be Man-Thing. And, of course, we did get that confirmed on Sakaar that Man-Thing does exist because he was one of the um, the different statues of because it was like Ares, Beta Ray Bill, Man thing, and there was another one they were building. I think it was Hulk. They just they had just started building Hulk, Hulk's face on there. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see what James Gunn says. We'll be covering that more as we learn more, guys. It happened. It officially happened. Endgame is going to pass Avatar at the domestic box office. It will be happening. Um, as of right now, it is brought in. $741 million, and the current estimate of a $30 million weekend will make it pass Avatar by $10 million. That and, uh, and, of course, Avatar, and I've said this a couple times, people need to remember, people are all like, oh, I don't know if Avatar is going to, uh, you know, if Endgame can beat Avatar. you got to think, Avatar literally was in theaters for several months, left for two months, and then came back right at Christmas for like a big special re-release to be like celebrated. And uh, that was the first time I saw the movie, honestly. And that's what pushed it to the domestic box office of getting $760,507,625. So uh, right now Endgame is looking at $771 million if this weekend holds up. John Wick Chapter 3 is supposed to be doing pretty good. Um, but I don't think that's going to prevent Avatar from falling. So it means that Endgame will now be the highest-grossing domestic movie of all time. Uh, but we still have the big one, the worldwide one, to go. And there's only about, I think it's just under $200 million now. It's like $194 million left that they have to go to gross in order to take it. 
Um, oh, there. Oh, oh, oh. Hold on. It passed Avatar, but it's not top for the all-time domestic list because Force Awakens was all-time domestic uh, top, which almost made a billion dollars domestic. So that one's pretty crazy. I didn't realize that, but it looks like Endgame could still climb over Avatar as the highest-grossing of all time. And wouldn't that be something? Now, guys, here's a crazy thing. I am not. I did not expect to see this pop up. But some sort of promo dropped. I'm not sure where it's from, which country it's from, but it's a promo from Spider-Man Far From Home. It literally gives away a giant fucking spoiler. And I like I don't know how to cover it right now because you've been kind of led to assume it could happen. But the thing that I thought they would make kind of like the big shocking ending part of this film to kind of gain some additional weight they just gave away in a promo, so I guess it doesn't really fucking matter that much because the promo exists, right? But uh, MJ, as they're going to call her, uh, Zendaya's character in Far From Home, learns about Parker being Spider-Man. She straight up figures it out, and there's a scene with her and Ned and Tom Holland's Spider-Man, and uh, they're conversing, and he's like, oh, he told you, and... Peter's like, yeah, and she's like, no, I fi- I pretty much figured it out, like, and that's and that's really it, you know. But to 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 just to have them give that away was kind of shocking. Like, wow, save some for the movie, man. I would have loved to have seen how that played out, you know. Uh, let's move into some DC news now, guys. You know, what's crazy is I and you guys probably haven't heard me talk about it all, but I have not seen an entire episode of this season's The Flash. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, last season's The Flash season five is over now. And it's over being that now you can, I think this, in two days, Wednesday, the 22nd, you'll be able to get that entire season on Netflix. You'll be able to watch all 23 episodes and uh, I'm going to. So I'm, I'm way behind on CW shows is what I'm trying to get at. I fell off hard. It just happened. Life got in the way. Shows got in the way. Everything else is in the way. It, it, craziness, madness, chaos. Don't like it. But then CW pulls me back in. You guys, they, they released the Batwoman trailer for CW. It's set before the Elseworlds crossover, so it's going to like build up that story. <clears throat> so I would guess that season one's going to be like the prequel that leads into that. And then season two will be like present day Crisis on Infinite Earths, I think is what they're building towards next season, which is crazy that we're already there. Um, but you know, it's even crazier to think that we are five years into The Flash. And in five years, it'll be 2024 where, you know... Uh, Flash supposedly disappears, and that'd be 10 years of the series. So if they can make it that 10 years and go to that full storyline, boom, that'd be awesome. So, anyways, I, you know, I'm not gonna play the trailer for the Super or for Batwoman. Go watch it yourselves. Do some viewing on your own. Get your own opinion on it. I loved it. It doesn't shy away from Bruce Wayne. It's very honest. It's very in your face. Looks like it's going to have a lot of love story in it, too, and some drama in there, which is typical CW, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Absolutely looking forward to Batwoman, and we're going to talk about a couple Batman things 
right now. It's crazy because there's some exciting Batman news, there's some terrifying Batman news, and then that's pretty much it. So, uh, here's one that's definite from the page to the screen because we're getting a pretty much literal, as close as they can, adaptation of Batman Hush. It's going to be a Blu-ray animated movie. It comes out uh, July 20th, June 20th, July 20th, uh, August 13th, you can get it on Blu-ray, but digitally July 20th. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories of all time. We did a comic club on it way, way, way back, Journey into Comics, 40-something, 44, 46, 43, somewhere in there. Um, but that story is great. So I'm really hoping that they, I mean, and just from the trailer, I was like, oh, done. I'm going to be seeing that. I'm super excited to watch it. I cannot wait to dissect it and talk about it on here. You know, I also, I maybe I need to do that. That'll maybe when Hush comes out, I'm going to watch Hush and Batman Ninja in a sitting. Because I still haven't seen Batman Ninja, and I really want to. And I feel really bad that I haven't seen it yet. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Watch that movie, dude. Come on. Get with the times. So that's the good news, because I, like I said, love Hush. Here's the news that, I mean, I'm sure some people are going to be like, Stop being so judgy about that goddamn kid in Twilight. Listen, Robert Pattinson should not play Batman. My opinion. Sorry. It was announced that he might most likely be uh, in the running to play Batman as one of the top people. Him and Nicholas Holt, who played Beast. So is it going to be the vampire or the Beast? Uh, I'm not sure. Was he a vampire? Was he a werewolf? I don't know. Whatever. Anyways, I'm not really in on the idea of Twilight guy being Batman, mainly because it's not going to work. It's just not, you're not going to sell me on that working uh, unless you bring something better than what the rumor is for villains. And the rumor for the villains are, it's like Batman Returns all over again. Penguin and Catwoman again? We've already seen this. Bring... Bring something unique for fuck's sake, Matt Reeves. Come on. Do the Court of Owls with Talon. Do anything. Do do Riddler with fucking Bane. Do Clayface, Scarecrow. Do anybody. But don't just go back to the well and do another penguin. Like, I get it. He's an iconic villain, but he's not the best. And I get it. You don't want to use Joker either because it's been done. But you have to find something in the Batman mythos. And there are so many. I mean, I'm just listing a few of the characters, but you guys know them. There are so many different possible bad guys they could pull for the big screen. We haven't had a proper big screen adaptation of the Riddler yet. Do it right. You know what's crazy? Sebastian Stan, he plays Winter Soldier, said he would love to be the Riddler. That it would be a role he would love to play. That'd be crazy. I don't know if he would fit that role, but interesting that he would like to take it so what do i think about nicholas holt i kind of feel the same way and and yeah he did beast that's cool and all but again these guys don't they don't capture the it factor that's going to make people believe and you got to make people believe especially after batfleck flopped because everybody thought batfleck was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread and yeah in the movies his Batman was awesome, no questions. However, and that's a big however, 
the shortcomings of Ben Affleck not wanting to be Batman and the pressures of Batman and the shortcomings of a terrible DCEU. Let's just face it. Let's just face the truth. It's not good. Okay? Those things considered, right? All those things considered. These guys can't. They can't match up. It's not going to work for them. So to close out on this, We'll see at, when this all comes to light who officially will be the bat. But I'm not happy with who they've selected. So, and I mean, who knows? So I have a little bit of cartoon news. For any of those of you who have children or you yourself like the Teen Titans Go series, the Teen Titans are getting a sixth member. We don't know who it is. We have no idea. But apparently they're going to summer camp. They're going to need a sixth member. And when that sixth member is revealed, which I think I just got the tease for who it might be. Okay, maybe not, though, because... Interesting. Just from the pictures of the summer camp, I'm seeing so many Easter eggs. Flash Easter egg, Wonder Woman Easter egg, Joker Easter egg. It's just a single still. But there's a literal question mark over the person, and you can't see their shape at all. So who knows? Maybe it will just be the question mark. Question mark, man. Anyways, let's get out of this Teen Titansy news because we've got some comic stuff to go over. Let's get into some Guardians of the Galaxy comic stuff because, you guys, Guardians of the Galaxy 5 just came out. Here's a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, Quill survived this what he thought was a death. The reality is that he's not dead. Um, but... Uh, Gamora and Nebula's uncle Euros shows up and essentially with Hela Euros resurrects Thanos and Thanos is alive again. So Thanos just came back in the MCU full bore and he's with Hela. So and you know what's crazy is that I'm pretty sure Tyler said that if Hela would have been alive for Endgame and Infinity War it would have played out differently. But also, with if she would have been alive, uh, Thanos could have like fallen for her because she was a uh, again the god the goddess of death. More literal interpretation interpretation. So that's pretty cool to see they did that in the comics. Now, you guys, it's been a while since we've talked about it, but I think it's time we talk a little Walking Dead. Uh, we had covered several issues that I had fallen back on. I'm going to do another several issues today. We're going to be covering issues 187 through 191. There was a huge thing that happened at the end of 191 that we absolutely need to cover. And last week I forgot to talk about it because I'm dumb. So anyways. All right. We're just going to talk about each issue that dropped and kind of what happened. So Governor Milton is thanking the residents for gathering for her speech. You know, she's talking about the tensions with the community. She's trying to get everyone to know that there was an attempt on her life, but Rick saved her. And Dwight was the assassin, but of course Dwight is killed by Rick. Um, but then that puts kind of a rip because, well, it's he's killed by Rick, but kind of because Michonne betrayed him. So there's this kind of rift between Michonne and Rick. We also see at Alexandria, Siddick arrived to see Magna, worried that she hasn't heard back from Rick, so they all gather up their troops and get ready. We've got Mercer going 
to his apartment and finding Juanita packing. Uh, things are getting ugly in Commonwealth, and she didn't really want to be there. So Mercer kind of tries to talk her into staying, and she says, nah, she needs to leave. She's not like her mom, and she needs to be alone. Uh, Sophia's out on a date with Joshua. Uh, they're kind of reminiscing, and she's talking about how Maggie's been her quote-unquote mom for most, most of her life. And Josh talking about how his family had lived on the road for a couple years. Carl's kind of observing, and he's happy. And Lydia and Carl have some jealousy problems because of Sophia. Uh, Carl's just happy for his childhood friend to have happiness. And, uh, you know, he calls him and Lydia monsters. And Lydia kind of takes offense to that. She's like, why would you call me a monster? She runs out, slams. Carl's like, oh, fuck. You know, uh, Rick and Michonne have a conversation at the cafe. They're, you know, trying to hash it out and make things better. She's like, listen, Dwight was a loose cannon. This was always inevitable. His death was always going to come. Rick's like, okay, I accept your apology. We got to move forward. You know, everything's cool. We have to make the world better. Back at the hilltop, Eduardo and another guard are talking. They notice some figures approaching and raising their spears. They realize it's Siddick and Maggie, and they're they're holding in a meeting, informing those present that she's worried about Rick. She asks for volunteers to accompany Siddick on the mission. Jesus and Aaron both agree. Dante also volunteers. Maggie asks Siddick if it's possible to observe the Commonwealth from a distance. Siddick confirms, informing her the Commonwealth is a pretty open community. So, uh, you know, they, she says, listen, go look. If things are good, come back, but return immediately if they seem bad. As the survivors prepare to depart, Carl joins the team to make sure his dad's safe. Maggie tries to stop him. Carl's like, look, this is what's happening. Lydia comes to see them off and asks Carl if he's leaving. Before Carl leaves, Carl explains his earlier sentiment and says she gave him the courage to stop hiding his injury and be himself. With that, they reconcile and embrace. At the Commonwealth, soldiers are changing their clothes, complaining about their life. Mercer asks anyone if they had a good day. When no one answers, he notes a few of them can remember their last good day. Mercer says that while the Commonwealth is certainly an improvement compared to anything they've had previously, he believes it could be so much better. He observes that none of the soldiers enjoy risking their lives for the governor, so invites them to overthrow the establishment and, st- and install new leaders. Mercer's speech is cut off when Lance enters the locker room with an armed escort, cryptically telling Mercer that Governor Milton will be very disappointed in him. And that was the cliffhanger of that issue. We jump forward. Uh, Mercer's getting ready to fight off Lance and his guards, expecting the other soldiers to support him. However, Lance snidely tells Mercer to look around. Mercer asks George for help, but not even he is willing. Lance suggests Mercer surrender. So Mercer kind of is fucked. And I thought he was going to be the uprising and we were going to have another new guy kind of kind of take uh, a little bit of charge and all this, but that is not the case. At the hilltop, Maggie and Brianna watch Herschel play. Maggie's worried, so Brianna asks why she didn't go with him to the expedition. She explains she doesn't want to beat away from Herschel that long. Uh, Brianna tries to reassure Maggie and tells her to trust men. Maggie replies that it is Pamela that she doesn't trust and wonders if she should have sent their whole army instead of just one expedition. Brianna tells her that they should do it if she feels like she should. On their way to the Commonwealth, uh, Siddick runs into Princess, and they call out to her, but she runs away. Jesus and Carl give chase, only to run into a herd of roamers. Jesus is thrown from his horse and is about to be devoured, but Carl saves him by ramming his horse into the herd. As the expedition is trying to escape, Princess shows up and instructs Jesus and Carl to follow her as she has a place to hide. They duck into a building as Siddick, Aaron, and Dante attempt to lead the herd away. At the Commonwealth Jail, Pamela confronts Mercer and expresses how disappointed she is, wondering where Mercer's sense of loyalty is. Mercer's furiously questioning, and they're kind of like arguing in this moment, you know. And he's taught, he literally brings up every point. He's like, 
you know how many times I've almost fucking died for you? Like, really? Think about it. And you've never thanked me. You've never cared. You've never anything. And she's, and he pretty much calls her a wannabe. He's like, you're not even a leader or a queen. You're nothing, you know? And he wasn't going to wait until, you know, she tried to make her shit for Brain's son, the new leader. Uh, Pamela turns to leave telling Mercer that he is right where he belongs. Uh, so Stephanie, this is interesting. Stephanie and Eugene are repairing the train when the guards inform them that Mercer has been arrested and their project is being suspended. Eugene wants to continue working on the train, to which one of the guards tells him that he and Stephanie are free to do so, but they won't be able to protect them as they are wanted back in town. Rick and Michonne are having uh, a visit together in their office and talking about Mercer's arrest. Michonne is not too pleased and... She's like, people are already on the edge of the revolt. Uh, she points out that while people don't trust the guards anymore, everyone liked Mercer, and now the guards have turned against him. The situation is very bad. Uh, she states that Elodie told her that the people are already taking sides. There could be have a full-fledged civil war on their hands, and this is kind of what's brewing. And it's like after, you know, Dwight was killed to kind of prevent that, um, Michonne says that Dwight only stoked the flames that were already there as the people hated uh, the people that were running this place. So Rick's kind of like, okay, maybe it's our presence. We need to just get out of there. And the guards are discussing Mercer's arrest in the locker room. Rufus asks George if they're just biding time, but George tells him to keep his mouth shut before leaving. Outside, Laura, uh, he is greeted by Laura, who introduces himself as Mercer's friends. He asks if George is his friend as well. Carl is watching the herd through a window and notes that they're starting to thin out. Jesus asks Princess what's happening in the Commonwealth, to which she replies things are getting bad, citing the reasons that she left. Carl wonders why she would just leave, to which she replies people are dangerous and that she only joined the expedition because she des- she was desperate and alone for a long time, but the Commonwealth reminded her that she's better off alone. Again, she had just left Mercer, and now Mercer's getting arrested. She's not there to kind of take his side. Uh, notice the threads that we weave here carl dismisses her claim asserting that no one is better off alone and that she secretly wants to be around people citing this is the reason she saved him and jesus she smiles to this and agrees to leave with them they go outside kill some walkers they wait for the rest of the expedition she remembers when she used to hope she'd go a day without having to kill a zombie then a month and eventually a year carl replies he's already gone a year without killing a zombie and that he hopes to get to a point where he doesn't have to kill a zombie for the rest of his life while the rest of the expedition returns Siddick informs them that they've managed to redirect the herd away from the Commonwealth towards the abandoned train yard where they first met Lance. Meanwhile, Eugene and Stephanie are still working on the train, oblivious to the herd closing in on them. And that was the final panel. That issue is awesome because their backs to the herd, no idea that it's coming. And this herd that, you know, uh, Carl and company and, you know, Siddick and everybody had worked to get out of there is all heading right for them. And it's just the two of them. And they have no weapons, really. And they think they're fine. You know, they they haven't seen walkers in a while, so things are good, you know. The next issue kicks off with a bang, though, because they are still fixing the train. And they finally notice the herd is upon him. Stephanie wants to run, and Eugene's like, no, we're surrounded. And we're going to just barricade ourselves inside this train. You know, Stephanie's crying. She's freaked out. She's never seen nothing this bad. And, of course, Eugene's like, I've got you. I've seen worse. Everything's cool. So Mercer's sarcastically talking to Laura in the jail. She tells him that that uh, she tells him that she needed to find out how many friends Mercer had before freeing him, to which he responds that in case, uh, in that case, to which 
he responds that in that case, he is surprised that she come for him at all. Laura smirks and tells him to back away from the wall. Boom! Huge explosion is heard throughout the Commonwealth, and Jesus and the rest of the expedition as they approach the community, as well as Rick, Pamela, Maxwell, Michonne, and Elodie. The wall of Mercer's cell had blasted open, showering prisoners with rubble, much to his annoyance. <laughs> so Mercer's like fucking annoyed with it. Laura apologizes, helped Mercer up. The sapper is revealed to be George, who Mercer is glad to see has finally come to his senses. George asks Mercer to cut him some slack since back in the locker room, he didn't know which soldiers were on their side, and he'd be useless if he was imprisoned as well. Mercer accepts this explanation and asks Laura what's next, to which she replies they're going to liberate the Commonwealth. Uh, Rick rushes into Pamela's office and says, you need to get out of here. Pamela's like, no, I'm fine. He's like, no, listen, somebody came and freed Mercer. He's coming for you. That's what's going to happen. So Sebastian arrives and tells Pamela that someone's banging on the door to try to get in. Rick tells him that it's the conspirators and asks Maxwell to lead them through the back. Uh, once outside, Sebastian grabs Rick and demands someone explains what's going on. Rick tells him that they're at the beginning of a revolt and he's trying to save Sebastian and his mother. Sebastian doesn't believe him and thinks nobody is brave enough to defy them. Rick angrily grabs Sebastian by the throat and tells him that everyone hates him and his family and they're taking advantage of people and treating them like shit. He asserts that they are the worst of the Commonwealth, but he does not believe they deserve to die because of it. He, citing that the only reason he, that, that is the only reason he is helping him. He lets go of Sebastian when Pamela asks him to go. They continue with their escape. They're waiting for the guards to pass. Rick asks Pamela if she knows a safe place to hide, to which she replies they need to get to Greenville, where Cloris will be able to help them. They follow Maxwell and manage to escape to the woods, where Rick is reunited with Paul, Carl, and the rest of the entourage. After exchanging pleasantries, Rick instructs Jesus to escort Pamela, Sebastian, and Maxwell to Greenville. Still trapped in the train, Stephanie notes that the herd isn't moving as Eugene predicted. He concludes that too many roamers saw them. Stephanie starts to panic once more, but Eugene calms her and assures her that he has a plan. He grabs a fire extinguisher and some duct tape, then he breaks out the window and starts spraying the dead with the extinguisher. Finally, he duct tapes the trigger and throws the still active extinguisher into the herd. As predicted, this distracts the herd. Eugene tells Stephanie they need to wait for an opening and then run for it. Stephanie is obviously still scared, but Eugene tells her that he is too. It's okay, though. He's done this before. He recounts the first time Alexandra was overrun and how he wanted to do nothing more than flee, but Rick led them and the others in fighting back against the dead and eventually eliminating the herd. Eugene reveals that he learned how to use his fear as a tool today, uh, as a tool that day. This seems to reassure Stephanie, and together they exit the train and flee from the herd. Rick tells Carl he shouldn't have come since Commonwealth has started a revolt. Carl asks what he can do, but Rick proudly tells Carl that he doesn't need to, con- to consult his father and that he will know when the time comes. Oh, man, that's so much foreshadowing. Meanwhile, Lance is seized by Mercer's men. Mercer's always asked, uh, Mercer asks him where the governor is, to which he replies that he doesn't know. Otherwise, he'd be with her. They're interrupted by a crowd who are protesting Mercer's coup calling the officer a tyrant and a fascist. Mercer ordered the crowd to disperse, but he is hit in the head with a bottle. Angered, he fires his gun in the air and disperses the crowd at gunpoint. He is then greeted by Rick, who asks Mercer what he is doing. Frustrated, Mercer tells him that he's doing what Rick should be by trying to help the Commonwealth. Mercer tells Rick that the people don't trust him and his guards and believe that things will get worse under his leadership. Rick tells him to look around and points out that they're right. Mercer concedes and asks Rick for his help. He tells Rick that while the Commonwealth might not choose him over Governor Milton, they might choose Rick instead. And we're gearing to this. I mean, things are, listen, everything is driving to this next couple issues of what's about to happen. And there's some things I've said earlier in in these, uh, you know, plot synopsis that have told you guys in so many words what's coming and why. 
okay? And I want to look back to this interaction where Rick grabs Sebastian by the throat and says nobody fucking likes him or his fucking mom and that they're pieces of shit, essentially. Just remember that here shortly. So Mercer tells Rick, this is issue 190 now, Mercer tells Rick that Pamela is only nice to him because she sees him as part of the elite, and while he acknowledges that this might be the case, Mercer is certain Rick isn't like her since he cares about people while she sees them as expendable. Mercer knows that people don't trust him and his men after the recent events, but believes they don't want to go back to the way things are. He thus invites Rick to take charge, asserting that he and his men will back him. Shocked by this request, Rick reluctantly refuses, explaining that the people in Commonwealth don't really know him since all he did was make one speech that was on behalf of the governor. Aside from that and a few stories citizens have heard about him, Rick believes uh, it to not be enough. He mentions things can change, but not like this, and it's going to take time. Mercer ominously tells him that time is something they don't have. Now back to Eugene and Stephanie observing the smoke from a hill on the outskirts of town. Stephanie concludes the long-awaited uh, time to overthrow the governor has finally happened, acknowledging that while she believes in the Commonwealth, she sees problems with it too. She realizes that this was the reason Pamela called their guards back. Eugene asks if the coup is a good thing, to which Stephanie suggests they go into town to find out. Um, Michonne, meanwhile, is running down the street yelling for Elodie, obviously in chaos. The guard intercepts her and orders her to return home, but Michonne frantically explains that she's looking for her daughter and promised to return home once she does. The guard tells her he will look the other way, since he appreciates what she did, but tells her to be quick about it. Michonne goes and knocks on the door in the apartment. One of Elodie's friends opens the door and tells her Elodie is inside. Michonne is shocked to find Elodie and her friends gearing up for war. She furiously snatches the gun out of Elodie's hands and scolds her and her friends, explaining that when they bring a gun to a fight, they can expect to get shot, and she refuses to let that happen. She orders them to stay in the apartment as Elodie and her friends stare in awe. Back to Eugene and Stephanie's conversation. It's being interrupted by an approaching herd. Stephanie wonders if the herd followed them. Eugene doesn't think so since they were quiet and the herd didn't see them, deducing that this must be a herd that was attracted by whatever produced the smoke cloud they had been observing. Meanwhile, Mercer orders his men to take Lance inside and lock him up. Rick offers to send Pamela, uh, send for Pamela so that he can negotiate. He assures Mercer that he hasn't crossed the line since no one has died, so there's still time. They are interrupted by Eugene and Stephanie, who inform them of the approaching herd, numbering a thousand or more. Mercer is shocked to learn about it and asks where the lookouts are. Stephanie reveals that Pamela pulled the guards back into town for protection when they imprisoned him. Michonne runs into Carl, Dante, Siddick, and Juanita, princess. Carl asks what's going on, Michonne trying to figure that out herself. Together they find Mercer and Rick. Rick informs them that there is a herd and that they have to get inside. Michonne says that she has to be with Elodie, so Mercer sends some of his men with her while ordering the rest to retreat inside. Once they do so, Rick orders everyone to stay quiet and keep away from the windows, assuming that the herd will pass if they do as he says. Rick tells Carl that it's really nice to see him, even though he wishes it was under better circumstances, while Carl wonders what even qualifies as better circumstances in this time. I mean, think about the world they've been living in for so long. After spending the night, Rick and the group are woken up by the sound of a horn. The hornblower turns out to be Magna, who has combined her forces with Maggie's and traveled to the Commonwealth in strength. After Maggie ordered her forces to drive the herd down the city, Yumiko asks Magna if she is uh, sure she wants to keep her back. But Magna tells her that there are bound to be stragglers after the herd leaves, so they will need to take care of them. Lance is ecstatic to learn that the herd is leaving, while Rick yells... Uh, at him to get away from the rando, Rick explains that he recognizes the sound of the horn and that the people are driving away the herd. Mercer asks Rick what happens after they clear out the dead, to which Rick replies they'll invite Pamela back to talk. Mercer wonders what happens if Pamela doesn't want to talk, but Rick assures them that they won't Rick assures him they won't give her a choice. 
As the herd thins out, both Rick and Michonne's groups go outside uh, to clear the stragglers. Two groups, as well as Maggie and Magnus' forces, meet in the road. Rick wonders what Maggie, what brought Maggie to the Commonwealth, to which she replies she had a hunch. Maggie tells him that it looks like he doesn't need help at all, pointing to the approaching army behind him. The army, to Rick and Michonne's shock, is being led by Pamela and Sebastian. Pamela Fury furiously asks him if she thinks she doesn't know what plots they've been hatching behind her back. Rick is confused by what she means, but Pamela goes on to say that he lied to her and believes that he was only helping her leave the city so he could march his army in and take over, conspiring with Mercer the entire time. Shocked, Rick denies the accusation, claiming that he has only worked to keep the peace in the Commonwealth, but Pamela doesn't believe him. Rick tells him to calm down. Rick tells her to calm down and invites her to talk, but Pamela is bewildered that he would suggest negotiation with an army behind his back. She goes to say that the, the army of Greenville stands with her and they won't stand for his deception, and then she yells, attack. So it looks bad, like, and I love that pa- that last panel is just her face, and she's screaming, attack, ah, and she's got this, like, hawk face. But now we're at issue 191, and this is the big one. Now, I will say, if you haven't read the comics, and you're naive to anything I just said before that, but you're still listening, but you want to read the comics, and you know anything about the characters in The Walking Dead, you might really, really might want to just not listen to the last part of the show because this is going to be heavy in spoilers. It's going to be heavy in the status quo changing for The Walking Dead. And, well, you guys will see. So here we go, getting into issue 191 of The Walking Dead, titled The Last Stand. Before both groups start fighting, Rick yells for them to stop and once again ask them to talk. Miraculously, neither group fired a shot. Much to Pamela's frustration, Rick explains to her that her army is being reasonable and implores her to follow that policy once more unless she wants to fight on her own. Rick goes on to deliver a speech to those present. He is certain neither group wants to fight as they've been through too much of that already. Rick has already proclaimed his love to the Commonwealth and pledges that he would fight and kill for the community and indeed already has. He understands why they've come into conflict but sees fear, anger, and hatreds in citizens. Rick proclaims that this is not who they are before lifting his naked stump in the air, his, his arm and claiming this is who they are. And he cites that his severed hand is an example of how the world has scarred them and explains how these scars serve as a reminder of everything they've sacrificed to get to where they are. Now he admits that he used to think the only way to survive was to embrace an inner savageness, but now he sees that that was wrong. Rick thinks that they are on the way to getting things back to how they were believing the future is bright. He goes on to say, we are not the walking dead, which he had and many, 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 over 100 issues ago said we are the walk. Almost over 200 issues ago, we are the walking dead. Rick believes that this new world is a gift, a chance to make things better than they were before. He thus thinks that bringing back the old flawed system is a mistake. He thinks that they should all have higher respect for one another because of what they've all lived through. He notes that this is not the case since the Commonwealth clings to the old system, where the few enjoy a position of power over the many and ask why that is. He denounces Governor Milton, telling her that she that he was wrong to support her since he thought he could uh, keep the peace by doing so. He had hoped that she would eventually see the error in her ways, but now sees her for what she truly is, someone who craves power. So much so that she would lead her own people into slaughtering each other. He then addresses the people of the Commonwealth directly, asking them if Pamela is the kind of leader they want which they vocally deny. Rick thus implores the people to take charge of their lives and build a better commonwealth. When Rick has finished, Mercer arrests Pamela, much to everyone's shock. Mercer tells Pamela he is taking her into custody for her own safety. 
furious. Sebastian protests that they can't arrest his mother and they need to keep the Commonwealth running, but Pamela tells him to be quiet unless he wants to end up in a cell next to her. As everyone cleans the street, Mercer com- commends Rick, noting that even the upper classes are being are, are helping with the cleanup. Aaron asks Sebastian for help, but he angrily storms right by him with Jesus dubbing Sebastian an asshole. Good call. Rick goes on to visit Pamela in jail. They're talking, and she's like, did you come to gloat? And he's like, no, I came to say I'm sorry. Things got out of hand during my speech. Didn't want you to be arrested, though the people were worked up, and you are safer behind bars. Pamela sarcastically asks, uh, who was it that worked them up in the first place? Rick stoically tells her that she led an army to slaughter her own people and asks if she really is in a position to criticize him. Pamela acknowledges that she got carried away and explains that, the genuine, that she genuinely believes the Commonwealth needs her to be in control in order to succeed. Despite telling her she's wrong in her beliefs, Rick believes she is genuine when it comes to them and reveals that he, uh, he made his share of mistakes as well. He then releases her, much to her surprise. Rick tells her that he's in a generous mood and, the, and thought she might be more comfortable to sleep in her own bed. Pamela asks if they're going to relocate her from her home. Rick doesn't see a need for this. Pamela points to some residents that have much nicer homes than others, and questions how they're going to determine who deserves to sleep in them. Rick admits that he doesn't know, but says they'll figure it out in the future. Mercer then arrives and tells Pamela that a couple of guards will escort her home. As she leaves, Mercer asks Rick if he is sure, if he is sure about letting her go. Rick is confident that she poses no threat, since no one in the Commonwealth actually wants her in charge. Rick in turn asks Mercer if he thinks Pamela will be safe, but Mercer tells him people are so happy he doubts anything will happen to her, but has guards posted outside her house just in case. <laughs> Rick then goes to visit Michonne in her office. She tells him that morale is at an all-time high and that candidates are lining up for the first ever election in Commonwealth, though she implies that Rick is the clear frontrunner since he inspired them. Rick claims that Michonne laid out the groundwork but denies running for governor of the Commonwealth, citing that his place is in Alexandria, where they have enough of their own problems. Michonne points out that he solved all of those, too, and tells him that they will always need him to inspire them. As they are walking home at night, Carl asks his father if he is going to run for governor. Rick once again denies this. Carl jokingly tells him that he can call the title something different, but Rick uh, replies that the title isn't the issue. He explains that if he simply takes over the Commonwealth, Pamela will turn out to be right, and the people would eventually realize that and turn on him. He instead believes the Commonwealth needs to grow from within. Carl wonders how Rick is able to see the future like that, but Rick informs him that it's just a feeling. Carl regretfully says that his feeling is sometimes wrong, but Rick assures his son that his feeling that his feeling is wrong all the time. He explains that the world needs people who are willing to stand up and do the right thing so badly, in fact, it's willing to forgive an occasional mistake. He tells Carl that he can't let the losses discourage him because people around them will always need the wins. Carl smiles and tells Rick that he is proud that he is his father, and Rick in turn tells Carl that he is proud that he is his son. With that, they wish each other good night since they've arrived at Carl's hotel. In the middle of the night, Rick is woken in bed and confronted by Sebastian, who is armed with a silent pistol. Finding himself held at gunpoint, Rick tries to convince Sebastian that he doesn't want to do this, but Sebastian replies that what he really doesn't want is for his for his and his mother's hard work to go down the drain and the Commonwealth falling apart because of it, and goes on to claim Rick ruined everything by disrupting the natural order of things. Rick instructs him to put the gun down, but Sebastian yells that, unlike everyone else, Rick can't tell him what to do. Sebastian reveals that he had heard about Rick long before he saw him and that his people almost view him as a god, with the people of the Commonwealth starting to see him in that light as well. He resentfully points out that all it took was one speech for from Rick for his family to be ousted from power. He rhetorically asks if he is supposed to pretend like every th- 
if he's like everyone else because Rick told him to. Despite Rick's best efforts to talk him down, Sebastian shoots him in the chest. Clutching his wounds in pain and bleeding heavily, Rick asks Sebastian, what did you do? And that's where the episode, that's where the issue ends. And it's like gut punch. Holy fuck. This is not good. Like this is very not good. And how they set up with Carl right before that. And you know, Carl and Rick having this really beautiful moment together where they're, you know, Rick just said, I'm proud that you're my kid, man. And Carl's like, Whoa, you've always known what's right. And Rick's like, no, I don't know what's right. You know, and to go back a couple issues there, that sending Pamela away with Sebastian and the throat grab and all that is Sebastian's tipping point that leads him to kill Rick or at least shoot Rick. We don't know. We don't, we don't really know, right? We don't know what the, what the end is game of this all is so the next issues cover has come out and the cover itself i do want to comment on because it's awesome it's carl and he's standing in the middle of a street the issue is called aftermath there are a bunch of walkers dead in the streets no one else in the streets it doesn't look like and carl looking a little bit forlorn uh the plot just says carl fights for the commonwealth but against who and i will say that this is going to be the final issue of their fourth compendium. It's going to be 30 pages long. It's going to be coming out in the first week of June. So I will be covering that. And then I got to figure out how to, um, there's some moving forward. We're going to have to talk walking dead differently, I think, but we're going to go from there, folks. The thing is, is that I read them sequentially as like one big arc and I don't take notes because I'm bad like that. So the best thing for me to do is like go to the wiki and read people's really nicely put together plots that re-summarize what I've already seen. Because it's like I can just picture every moment. They The, the art is so beautiful in these books. And uh, it's crazy to me that we are only nine issues away from issue 200. And they did this humongous, most likely humongous death of Rick. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I see him... I, getting out of this, I guess, is the way to say that. There's to me, there's not really a way out, but but we'll see. We will absolutely see, folks. Um, I tell you what, this has been a great episode of Journey into Comics. I'm so glad you guys listened. This week's episode is brought to you by the Journey into Comics Network. You guys can check out the Journey into Comics Network every day of the week. Go on to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, Castbox, TuneIn, and many others. Spotify. Just search Journey into Comics Network. You'll get all the shows on our network. We've got new shows coming up too. Uh, we got Journey into Comics. You're obviously listening here. Poor 360 every Tuesday. Journey into Wrestling, Foodies, Watching Movies, Adulting Ain't Easy, Podcast, Trophy, Kids for Sale, Crucial Tunes, The Voice of Survival Podcast, Gallif Radio, Brews with Dudes, Dungeons with Dudes. And like I said, we got some new stuff coming up for you guys. Make sure to go to patreon.com backslash journey into comics to give us a dollar for early access and exclusive content. Meaning as soon as these episodes are done being recorded, they go directly into your ear holes before anybody gets them on the main feed. Also, if you want to just check us out at the main feed, go to journeyintocomics.com. If you're getting us on the browser, the nice thing about the browser is that's the full experience of the network. That's what our quote-unquote site looks like. You guys get the coolness of listening to us, but we, you know, we really love how our site looks. So if you haven't seen it, you go to journeyintocomics.com, and let me, I'm just going to give you guys a quick rundown here, because it's really simple. 
every day of the week, new episode's going to be on the top. So if you want to go down the week, you're going to scroll down. But on the right-hand side, you also have the archives. Now, if you're on the actual browser and you have the archives, you can click those archives and it will pull up specific episodes for you, specific things, season one of Journey into Wrestling, season two or three or one of Foodies Watching Movies, any of the episodes of Podcastrophy, the first season of Voice of Survival. I mean, literally, it's so easy to use that you guys can go and find anything you want. One of my favorite new features is now you can go to the Dungeons with Dudes section there, the 12th tab down, and uh, there you can go listen to their Death House campaign in one section. You can listen to the Barovia Bros campaign, which end which ended yesterday, the 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 second half of their campaign. So Death House was like part one, Barovia Bros is part two. I guess the Barovia Bros is the whole story, but Barovia Bros in the campaign was part two. Part three is Balekis. I can't, I'm, I'll figure it out once they really start sending them to me and we can release them. But I tell you what, I love what's coming on the Journey into Comics Network. I love the future. I really appreciate you guys listening to this week's episode of Journey into Comics 244. I have been your host, Nate. As always, pop your calves back and fill your brains with shit. Later, guys.